Turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John is where we are. 1 John, we'll be looking specifically at verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1. We went through the introduction last week of the first letter of John. Again, John, when he's writing this, uh, John's an old guy, right? Like He's an older man who is trying to give wisdom and probably one of the last things that he'll probably ever say to the churches in Asia Minor. So think of John as he's the only disciple, the only apostle who is left. And he's looking at the younger church, and he's noticing that there's some changes that have occurred in the, in the subsequent generations that have passed since Jesus was on earth. And he's seeing some heresy come in. There's some false teaching. There's some people who are coming in who are saying, you know, sin isn't that big a deal. Doesn't really matter. You know, I, I, you know people might even be saying, like, I don't have any sin. I don't need to confess my sin. I, I don't struggle with any of those things. Uh, some people would say that, you know, God's Word, you know, Let's, let's take God's Word and let's take the stuff that we really like about God's Word and let's embrace it. And the things that we don't like about God's Word, let's just take it out. Let's strike through it or let's take the pages and rip them out of our Bibles. And John sees this and he sees a church that is in turmoil, a church that is struggling, and he's, and he's giving his, sort of his, his farewell discourse, if you will. He's saying, these are the things that are important and these are the last things that I will say to you before I die and go to be with Jesus. So let's pay attention to what John has to say. Sort of the, the last bit of wisdom. Now, when we read uh, John uh, verses 5 through 10, uh, there are these um, key words that we see, and I want you to see them. And it's this word, if we say. If we say. Three times in verses 6, verses 8, and verses 10, what John is um, leading us towards is our self-delusion and how we will lie to one another when we say these things. So these are the negative portions of this, but then interspersed within this, we'll see two positives. So the, if you were to read this, he makes a statement about who God is, uh, and then he makes a, a negative statement in verse 6, a positive statement in verse 7, a negative statement in verse 8, a positive statement in verse 9, and a negative statement in verse 10. So if you're, if you're taking notes, if you're reading through your Bible, you'll just see that. So every, every time it says, um, if we say, he is alluding to our lying to ourselves in the midst of what he's saying. All right? So, if you will, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? We're going to read verses 5 through 10 of chapter 1. And I just want to set that up for you. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Um, may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So, here's what we, here's what we have. We have this, this, this great picture that the Lord is setting up for us through his word, through the Apostle John, of the way that we lie to ourselves. And I don't know about you, but there is a tendency for me to lie to myself and to deceive myself. For example... 
I might look in the mirror and go, man, my hair looks good, right? No, come on. I mean, really? I mean, it, it probably does. It's not, it's not out of place or anything like that. But let me, let me give you one that's even worse. I do this on a regular basis, all right? I like to play golf. Um, and sometimes when I'm playing golf, I may hit an errant shot, right? And that errant shot may go into a place called the rough, which is higher grass. And oftentimes in front of me, in the rough, there is a tree, and the tree might be close to me, but the tree is certainly in between myself and the, and the flag or the green to which I am aiming. But I will delude myself and deceive myself in thinking this. Most of that tree is made out of air. I'm pretty sure I can hit through that tree. I'm pretty sure my ball won't strike that tree. I'm pretty sure that this is going to end up good for me. Now, let me just tell you, it doesn't end up good for me. What I should do in the midst of my golf game is, is enact repentance. Repentance is actually chipping out into the fairway, maybe sometimes behind me, so that I actually have a clear pathway so that I can get towards the, the green and just take my, just take it, all right? But I don't do that. Why? Because I'm foolish. And I think, and I delude myself into thinking that I can get through that little V channel that only maybe Tiger Woods or Phil Mickelson could get through maybe a third of the time, but I think and delude myself into thinking that I can you know, go through and thread the needle. And almost always, almost always, the only time I don't hit the tree is when I hit a worse shot and it goes even further a, a fly, right? But what happens is I hit the tree and it goes back to me or it goes sideways or I lost my ball or it goes someplace that I don't want it to go. And I delude myself. And what John is saying in the midst of 1 John is that we say things that delude ourselves. And part of that is the deceitfulness of sin. Now, when we think about the deceitfulness of sin, here's what happens. Um, Jeremy Taylor, who was a uh, a cleric uh, or you know, a rector in the Church of England probably in, in around 1640, 1650. Uh, he was actually, because of his poetic style, he was actually known as the Shakespeare of the Westminster Divines. Here's what he said about the deceitfulness of sin. He says, first, sin startles him. Speaking of believers, right? Speaking of believers in Christ. First, sin startles you. Then it becomes pleasing. Then easy. Then delightful then frequent, then habitual, then confirmed. Then the man is impenitent, then obstinate, then resolves never to repent, and then he is damned. For the wages of sin is death. I think that poem that he writes, and, and, he, and he references you know, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, which talks about, lest any of you have a hardened heart through the deceitfulness of sin. We think about this, that, that oftentimes when sin enters in, we'll talk about sin, what, how do we define sin? Um, but when, when sin enters in, it startles us. We, can't like, we almost go, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm being tempted in this way. I can't believe I'm actually moving in this direction. But then it goes from being startling to being pleasing to being easy to being delightful then to being frequent then to being habitual and then confirmed. And at some point in our lives, we have to correct that. And we want to correct that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, so that we know what is right from wrong, what is wicked from what is um, good. Now, the first thing that John says, and let's just kind of work our way through um, 1 John verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 
Now, the message that, that the apostles were given through the Lord Jesus, the, the testimony of the Scriptures is this, is that God is this holy um, and He is without sin. That to look into um, the face of God is brighter and, and than looking into the sun on a bright, shining day. And you know this, right? Like when you look into the sun, and when you're a little, you're always doing this. You're like, how long can I look into the sun before I have to turn away? It's not very long. If you look with your eyes open, and my father-in-law, who's an ophthalmologist, says, don't look at the sun, it'll burn out your retina. Like, but, but for me, that means I want to look at the sun even more, right? Especially when we're at the beach and the sun comes up, and he's like, no, don't look at it, it's going to burn out your I'm like, yeah, okay, Pop, whatever. You know? and, and I want to look at it, right? But when the sun is bright and shining, you can't look at it very long. Now, this light is, is a theme throughout Scripture. When we think about, you know, in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses first encounters God, it's in the midst of a burning bush, and that light would light up the evening, or even light up the day. And that when he got closer to the light, not only did it display the God's brightness and, and where he was, but he actually told Moses, Moses, take off your shoes, take off the sandals, because the, the, the ground on which you're treading is holy. We don't want anything that's unclean to become close to God. Or in Exodus chapter 13, when God is leading the Israelites out of Egypt and leading them to the promised land, it says this, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from them from before the people of Israel. We also see this in terms of who Jesus is when he talks about being the light. So it says in John chapter 8, in one of the I am statements, Jesus says, spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or maybe even more explicitly, we see it in Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus is transfigured in, in front of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. And after six days, you know, in Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up high, a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And what does that mean? And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, now what does that mean? So this, this image of Jesus, this image of, of the Lord God being bright and shining and being the light of the world, what is it referring to? Well, um, he actually uses, John uses, employs a double negative later on in that verse. Even there might be poor grammar in English. It's excellent grammar in the Greek to define what this is. That it says that, and that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So what does that mean? Not only is God light, but there is absolutely no darkness Within him, not one, and I'm reading from a commentary here, not one scintilla of darkness, meaning that there is, there is no moral imperfection in him. In him is no shade, speck, or, strain, or stain of moral imperfection. In him is no fault, failure, or falsehood. In him is no deceit, deviation, or dishonesty. Physical darkness is a terrible thing. There is no distance in darkness. Darkness is limitation. Darkness is imprisonment. There is no jail with walls so thick and impenetrable as darkness. Darkness is an apt metaphor to describe sin. 
unlike my heart and your heart, where the light of the gospel shines, but where sometimes there may be pockets of sin that we we allow to go unchecked. God in his character and nature possesses no moral imperfection whatsoever. What is your view of who God is? What is your view of the perfection of God? You know, again, when, when somebody says, what is your view? Who is God to you? Like, we should have an answer for that. You know, some people will say God is love. Is that true? Absolutely. But you know what else is true? That God is light. That God is holy. That God is just. That God is merciful. That God is righteous. That God is forgiving. That God will in no way, you know, allow those who sin to go without punishment. I mean, our view of God should be shaped by the Scriptures... And we can't just take one scripture and say, this is the scripture that denotes who God is. But rather, God is all of these things. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, who is God? And God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And all of those things are true about who God is. And in the midst of 1 John, what John is trying to say to the church is, to the, to the people that he wants to grow up and have fellowship, you need to know that God is pure and that he is holy. And that just like in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah comes in and he falls on his face and he recognizes his own sin. And why does he recognize his own sin? Because when the light shines upon you, you will notice the, 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 the ways that you have broken, um, the ways that you have actually erred in your thinking and in the ways that you, you think, in the ways that you, you walk, in the way that you talk, all of those things you will become aware of when the light of, of God shines upon you. I think about it um, um, in terms of, um, how many of you guys have been in the Navy? I'm not in the Navy, I was I'm in the Air Force. Navy, right? Like, I love to think about, um, what I would love to do is invite all the naval officers in their summer whites and serve them spaghetti. You know, and their, and their white choker you know, showing up, and I would imagine that that would be one of the, the worst possible things. You know, and I don't mean like really thick spaghetti, I mean really soupy spaghetti, right? You know, like where, where you know, because any stain on those summer whites that the naval officers have to wear, I mean, besides having to like serve ice cream all the time, because that's what they look like, you know, ice creams, are, but, but they're, they're beautiful uniforms, but they also, you know, you see every stain, speckle, and blemish upon them. I mean, much better to have the, the Marine Corps, because they can probably hide something, at least a little bit, right? You know, But within those, those whites, what, every stain, and the, and the brighter it is, the more you see any stain, wrinkle, and blemish. But what God is, God is saying that, that He is light and that there is no darkness in Him at all. Now, if we think about this, let me go to the, the last one. Go to verse 10 for a second in 1 John. You know, the lie that we say to ourselves is this. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, the reason I go to verse 10 rather than just going you know, sequentially here is that there's, there's this sense in which that God is light and that is talking about the pure, uh, the purity, the holiness of God. And in verse 10 where we say, I have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us in this way. We know that the word of God says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all. 
There is only one who had never sinned, and that would be Jesus. And in His moral perfection, He saved us. But everybody else, since the beginning of mankind, are sinners. Okay? And we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners, inheriting our sinful nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And there are people who will say, you know, I don't really have a problem with thinking about God's moral perfection, but what I do have a problem is saying that you think that I'm a sinner, right? Well, you know, let's define that word sin. You know, sin is that ugly word that describes the condition of us all. So what is sin? Sin is missing the mark. Uh, The root meaning for the word in the New Testament is sort of uh, this term that comes out of archery, right? So if we are aiming at a bullseye, and we are using a bow and arrow to hit the bullseye, when we miss the exact center of the target, we are sinning, right? You might be in the yellow, you might be in the red, you might be in the white, you might have missed it all. But any transgression there is a sin unless you are hitting the absolute center of where God wants you to be. Now, the other way that we can think about sin is sin is also a falling short of God's standard. Sin is also a transgression and disobedience. It is stepping over the line. It is disobeying the law. There's something of a progression. You know, you you see that, you know, within these verses, um, there's... um, A man named R.G. Lee said this, and this is, again, somewhat poetic about sin. He says, Sin is the skull set amidst life's banquet, the desert breath that drinks every dew, a madness in the brain, a poison in the heart, an opiate in the will, a frenzy in the imagination. Sin, the disease of the soul, the instrument of everlasting ruin, the midnight blackness that invests man's whole moral being, subverted the constitutional order of man's nature. Sin, promising velvet and giving a shroud, promising liberty and giving slavery, promising nectar and giving gall, promising perfumed handkerchiefs and giving fusel rags, promising silk and giving sackcloth. I mean, that's how he describes sin. You know, in In all of sin, Archibald Alexander says, in all sin there is some bait, some apparent good, right? Otherwise we wouldn't do it, right? Some expectation of pleasure or profit from unlawful indulgence. In all sin, the mind is under a delusive influence. Right thoughts and motives are for the moment forgotten or overborne. The attention, like the eye of a beguiled bird, is fixed on a point from which it cannot be withdrawn. The enticement prevails and guilt is contracted, thinking about this idea of sin. Now, when we describe um, sin, I mean, think about it. Um, I think that we would be hard-pressed to say that we are not sinners. And yet, there are people who would say, you know, I'm not a sinner. But when we say that we are not a sinner, we make him a liar, and his word, meaning the, the holy word of God, the word found within the Bible is not in us. That's, that's the third lie that we see. But let's talk about the first lie, right? Lie number six, or verse six, lie number one. It's this idea, if we say, if we say we have fellowship with him. Now, what does that mean? If we say that, that essentially that the Lord God Almighty, 
the, the pure um, God, the Father, and, and I are linked together, if we're, if we're boys, if we're friends, if we're linked together in fellowship, if we say we have fellowship with, with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now think about this. What does it mean to walk in the darkness? Walking in darkness can mean um, committing any sin, great or small. Shrouding oneself with cover of night. And this is, again, from David Allen, a commentary. He said, shrouding oneself with cover of night and wielding an assassin's knife. A would-be murderer stalks his victim. Or it might involve hatching a nefarious plot against the just to attempt to bring them down or tarnish their reputation. Gloating over financial gains of avarice. Nursing in your imagination an unchecked passion or lust. Sitting in front of your computer under cover of late night to satisfy an addiction to internet pornography. Cheating on a test. Lying to the IRS. Hating your neighbor. Defrauding your employer. Wasting precious time given to you by God. Neglecting spiritual disciplines such as Bible reading and prayer. Or a thousand other sins of omission and commission. Great and small. In thought, word, and deed. All of this is walking in darkness. Walking in darkness can begin when we fall into the trap of renaming sins so that they do not appear so bad. Political correctness abounds in our society. A person is not lazy. He is merely motivationally dispossessed. A shoplifter is not a thief. He is a cost-of-living adjustment specialist. A prostitute is not a prostitute. She is a sex care provider. Sin does not lose its sinfulness by giving it a less offensive name. A skunk, by any other name, still stinks. You see that? I mean, think about that, that long list there. And what it says is, if we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, where do we find this today? It's, it's in the midst of even churches that will say, you know what, you can do whatever you want to with your body, sexually immoral, go do it, but you can still have fellowship with the Father. Here's God's design, here's what we're called to do, but it doesn't matter. We can still have fellowship, and you can live however you want. You can live in the midst of great confusion, but just satisfy your, your carnal desires and you have fellowship with God. That's what some churches are saying today. And we have to say no. When we do that, we do not have fellowship with God, but rather we are actually lying. We, we lie and do not practice the truth. But look at, if that's the negative in verse 6, look at the positive in verse 7. The positive is, is very helpful. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, Notice the promise. We have fellowship with one another. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, it doesn't say we have fellowship with him, but it actually says that we have fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I probably mixed one up, but you know, if we're, if we're manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, then we are actually getting along with one another, not only getting along, but actually loving one another to the point where the world sees us and goes, hey, that's different. You know, when you walk in the light, like for example, when I am um, out in the sun and I don't have a hat on and I come home, my wife knows that I have been in the sun without a hat because I'm sunburned, right? And it hurts, right? Now, when you walk in the light, when you walk in the light of Jesus, people will notice because in a similar way, when Moses was 
you know, in, in the book of Exodus, when he would spend time with God and he would come out after spending time in the Holy of Holies, his face would literally emanate out the glory of God to the point where he had to put a veil over his face because people were like, that guy has been with God. Now, in a similar way, when you spend time with the Lord, when you commune with the Lord, when you walk in the light as he has called you to, there's a sense in which everybody else looks at you and says, there's something different about you. You walk a little different, you think a little different, and it seems as if this person walks with God. There's something very attractive. Now, but not only will we have it with one another, but this idea that, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. From all sin. Now, when we think about that, think about all the sin that you commit. Now, don't, 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 don't get too wrapped up in this, but, but I want you to think about this. When he talks about the cleansing of all sin, does John mean the sin of adultery? Bearing false witness, coarse joking, deceit, envy, fraud, gossip, holding a grudge, idleness, judgmentalism, killing the innocent, lying, malice, not keeping oaths, oppressing the poor, prayerlessness, quarreling, returning insult for insult, slander, trusting in riches, unlawful divorce, violence, and witchcraft? Yes. He means all of that. That's the beauty of the gospel, is that we're cleansed from all of those things. They are all covered. Every single sin that stains us and makes us too defiled to commune with the holy God has been cleansed by Christ's death on the cross. His atoning sacrifice for our sin has made fellowship with God possible. And that's what's amazing about the gospel. You see, the truth of the gospel is is that we're sinners and that God is holy. And that God cannot allow a sinful man into his presence. And so how does God work that out? He sends his son to die on the cross. And what happens on the cross is that the righteousness of Christ is transferred to us and our sins are transferred to Jesus. And the wrath of God befalls all of our sins that we have ever committed, past, present, and future. Because every sin or transgression or missing the mark Every willful or unwillful sense of disobedience must be punished by a holy God. And he does on the person of Jesus upon the cross. And that's why it says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness and thereby making us, um, allowing us to be in fellowship in a reconciled relationship with God our Father. But if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. How about this one? Here's, here's a big lie. Big lie. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now that's very similar to, to verse 10. But it says, if we say we have no sin. Now here's a funny story. Charles Spurgeon um, uh, had a man come up to him. Charles Spurgeon was a great Baptist uh, pastor. And he had a man come up to him after a worship service and said, I don't have any sin in me anymore. And Spurgeon went, huh, I would like to talk to you a little bit more and examine your, 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 your claim that you are without sin. So why don't you come over to my house, come over to my house and have dinner with me and some of my friends. And the man said, sure, certainly, uh, Mr. Spurgeon, I'll come over. So the man came over to Spurgeon's house 
And as the man began to talk about uh, his sinlessness, you know, um, Charles Spurgeon got up, um, he got up from his chair, he picked up a glass of water and went up to the man and threw the water across the man's face. Immediately and understandably, this perfect man showed his imperfections, causing quite a scene, allowing his anger and language to cross the line of courtesy. To which Spurgeon, probably with a twinkle in his eye, replied, Ah, you see, the old man within is not as dead as you claim. He had simply fainted, and I have revived him with but a glass of water. I'd have been upset too. Um, Spurgeon also said that he who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in himself. Some people struggle with that. I mean, some people struggle with the idea of um, what, where, I mean, here's an example. Every week we have a confession of sin here, right? Every week. I mean, if you come to church on a regular basis, we get to a point where you get in the service and we go, hey, please, let's, um, like, Blake or myself, we'll read a confession of sin, and then we have a silent time of confession of sin, right? Now, some of you, we can't give the hour it takes for you to confess all your sins, right? Because when it doesn't matter how long it is, you are still confessing. There are other times when in the midst of the confession of sin, your mind goes blank. Anybody here ever have that happen to them? Come on. Come on. You, you totally go blank and you're like, I don't know. Um, there was a, a woman who came up to a, a, a preacher and she says, Preacher, I can't think of any sins to confess. And the pastor suggested to her, try guessing at it and you'll hit on something. Like whatever it might be. It might be anger, it might be frustration, it might be anxiety. You might have said something. I mean, think about one thing and eventually you're going to hit something in your life that you need to confess. And one of the ways that I think that we're beguiled and deluded by sin is that we think that oftentimes, hey, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. The problem with that is the standard that we use to determine whether or not we're a pretty good guy or gal is somebody who's always worse than us. We always pick somebody worse than us to determine our own moral righteousness. We never pick somebody better than us. We never do it. We always pick somebody worse. And who is it? It's always Hitler. Today it's Putin. You know, it's somebody else, right? And we're like, well, at least I'm not like it made in Ukraine. I'm not like Putin, right? You know, at least I'm not like Hitler, you know? But when we begin to look at ourselves, we need to compare ourselves to the standard of Jesus and his moral perfection, that, that he is light and he cannot allow any sin to even enter in. When we begin to compare ourselves to that standard, we begin to recognize that the light shines upon our moral imperfections and shows the recesses of our heart. But the beauty of the gospel is this, that if we confess our sins, look at, I mean, and I, I, we've read this many times, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the good news. All your sins. You know, what I find is that sometimes um, we know that we're forgiven but we don't feel as if we were actually clean. <laughs> and we would rather wear our stains upon us so that we feel like um, that we sort of wear them as badges or we feel like, you know, there's no way that somebody could forgive me. But, but the truth of the gospel, the lie that we tell ourselves is that we have no sin. We deceive ourselves. 
But the truth in verse 9 is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There was uh, once a woman who confided in the hymn writer Charles Wesley. And she said, I am a great sinner. I am a Christian, but sometimes fail so dreadfully. Please pray for me. And Charles Wesley looked at her rather sternly and replies, Yes, madam, I will pray for you, for truly you are a great sinner. Taken aback by Wesley's demeanor and straightforward reply, she answered, What do you mean? I've never done anything very wrong. You see that? I mean, like there's this self-righteousness that we have within us when, that when somebody else acknowledges it, we're like, oh, whoa, 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 I'm not that bad, right? Yeah, the reality is if you looked at the recesses of my heart, you'd be stunned at the, at the level of sinfulness that's there. But the truth of the gospel is that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us. So there's, there's two promises there. Not only are we forgiven for what we've done, but then he cleans us. Um, Let me conclude with this story. Um, Picture this Sunday morning scene. A mother says to her little boy, we are getting ready to go to church. So do not go out and play because it rained last night and the ground is muddy. Now that mama should have never said that. Because the moment that that command is given... That child is looking for the biggest, baddest mud puddle that they can, they can go into, right? So, but the little boy slips outside when his mom's back is turned to get a little playtime in before they go to church. He slips and falls in a mud puddle while wearing his Sunday best and gets mud all over him. He comes into the house crying and says, Mama, Mama, I'm sorry. I fell and I got mud all over my clothes. I'm sorry. And at that point, what does his mother say? She says, I forgive you. I don't know, maybe she said something else. But here, okay, just for the sake of this argument, she says, I forgive you. That takes care of his guilt, right? His guilt, his, his, his transgression is forgiven. And that's forgiveness. And at that point, what does his mother say? She says, I forgive you. That takes care of the guilt, but her child is still her son. But then what does this mother do? Does she send him to church wearing stained clothes? No, she cleans him up, changes his clothes, And that is what God is saying to you. God will take care of your guilt and God will take care of your stain as well. Some of us, I think, we get the forgiveness part, but we don't know that God continues to cleanse us. And some of us feel like the stains in our life are so rooted into us that there's no way that we could be seen as lovable by God our Father. That's another way that we self-deceive us and we lie to ourselves. Because brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, God the Father says, beloved to you. He says, I love you. I forgive you. And I have cleansed you from all unrighteousness because of what Jesus, my son, has done for you. Forgiven and cleansed. Live in the midst of that truth. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the way that you love us and care for us and you forgive us and you cleanse us. And Father, I pray that we would not live as those who lie to ourselves, but Father, that we would live in the light of the truth of your word, that we would pour over your word and that we would love that which you love and hate that which you hate. Father, every sin that we've ever committed is forgiven in Christ. 
May we rest in that promise and look forward to the day when sin will be no more. Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.